0: As you hear sounds coming up in your head, thoughts, you simply listen to them as part of the general noise going on, just as you would be listening to the sound of my voice or just as you would be listening to cars going by or to birds chattering outside the window. So look at your own thoughts as just noises. This is Billy Hansen, and welcome to another episode of Sauce Talk podcast about sports and the mind and trying to live well in general. Today's episode is going to be another chunk from my audiobook. It's chapter 22, which is called Mental Health in Sports, and chapter 23, which is called The Medicine of Practice. And in Mental Health in Sports, I outline all of my thoughts and ideas on mental health in sports. And my ideas and advice come from my own experience suffering from paralyzing performance anxiety and depression as a sophomore in college through my recovery. I also draw ideas from the books I've read and the research I've done and through interviewing other athletes and through teaching meditation to other athletes and hearing about their experiences. And I try to summarize all of my thoughts and opinions on the topic into one chapter. In the next chapter, chapter 23, The Medicine of Practice, I basically make an argument for why athletes should take mental health and mental training seriously, not only to reduce the likelihood of dealing with depression and overwhelming anxiety, but also as a way to optimize performance and really make the most of a short and precious athletic career. These chapters come after my personal story is complete towards the end of the book, and I hope you enjoy them. So here is chapter 22 and 23 from my new book. Chapter 22, Mental Health in Sports. One, according to the National Institute of Mental Health, nearly one in five adults and one in three adolescent children suffer from some form of anxiety disorder. College students, athletes among them, are becoming more anxious and depressed all the time. A 2016 report by the Center for Collegiate Mental Health using data from 139 colleges found that by the 2015-2016 school year, half of all students surveyed reported having attended counseling for mental health concerns. Some of the disturbing upticks we're seeing in depression and anxiety data are the result of more people seeking help and discussing their problems openly. But we're also seeing upward trends in self-harm and suicide amongst adolescents and young adults, indicating that there is indeed a problem with mental health that's getting worse. There are people suffering from truly awful mental health problems like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, etc. People with these problems have often suffered unbearable traumas and tragedies, sometimes in childhood. The focus of this chapter is not on these deeper problems, but instead concentrates on athletes who are dealing with issues similar to those I dealt with. My objective is to help struggling athletes better understand their issues and hopefully recover. 2. When I showed up at Regis, I was unprepared to play in the Rocky Mountain Athletic Conference. I was overwhelmed by the pace of the game and the athleticism of my opponents. It's clear to me in hindsight that I would have benefited from spending a year as a redshirt or riding the bench as I grew accustomed to the intensity of college basketball. I also had limited experience with tough coaching. The success and relative lack of adversity I experienced in high school left me completely unprepared for Coach Porter, who was fiercely demanding and didn't hold back in his criticisms of his players. But even as it happened, I knew that blaming my issues on my head coach wasn't fair. Most of my teammates were unhappy too, and many were more fiercely criticized than I was. But as far as I knew, none were staving off anxiety attacks before practice or having trouble breathing at the free throw line. I've also come to understand that while my basketball struggles were at the core of my issues with anxiety, I also contend with anxieties that have nothing to do with sports, So why was I so messed up? Were my issues the result of some childhood trauma? Not that I can remember. I had a loving and supportive family and enjoyed a relatively healthy childhood. Was it a genetically influenced medical condition, a chemical imbalance in the brain? There's anxiety and addiction in my family tree, which would support such a conclusion. Were my problems the result of my flawed life philosophy, my poor habits and behaviors? This makes sense because changing my outlooks, habits, and behaviors helped me, but this doesn't help everyone. Or were my issues a spiritual problem? I was a hardened materialist without any form of spirituality at the time, so that could be true. Or perhaps my problems were the result of the culture I lived in. This seems reasonable as I'd adopted a hyper-self-critical attitude common in modern athletics and tried to fight and struggle my way toward future success. I was desperate to live up to the expectations set by my scholarship and to please the coaching staff, which led me to put immense pressure on myself to perform. More generally, modern youth culture consists largely of distraction and pleasure seeking, looking at screens instead of trees and rivers, craving followers and likes, swiping dating apps and watching porn, and eating and drinking junk. How could that not lead to anxiety and depression? Scott Stossel, in his Atlantic article, Surviving Anxiety, describes his own lifelong struggles with anxiety disorders. He writes the following, quote, The truth is that anxiety is at once a function of biology and philosophy, body and mind, instinct and reason, personality and culture. Even as anxiety is experienced at a spiritual and psychological level, it is scientifically measurable at a molecular level and a physiological level. It is produced by nature and it is produced by nurture. It's a psychological phenomenon and a sociological phenomenon. In computer terms, it's both a hardware problem, I'm wired badly, and a software problem. I run faulty logic programs that make me think anxious thoughts. The origins of a temperament are many-faceted. Emotional dispositions that seem to have a simple, single source, a bad gene say, or a childhood trauma may not. End quote. Three. Athletes are at a mental health advantage in some respects. In an isolated and fragmented modern world, being on a sports team offers a sense of collective purpose, a shared sense of struggle, a tribe. This is one of the most positive things about being a team sports athlete. For most sports, weightlifting and physical exercise are built into the athletic experience, which certainly helps with issues of mental health. Successful athletes are often popular in school, and enjoy a sense of self-confidence that's based on athletic success. But athletes are disadvantaged in other ways. The stress and pressure placed on modern young athletes, either by overzealous parents or by society, or in my case, by one's own self, can be overpowering. Promising young athletes feel the pressure to play on the most prestigious travel teams and spend much of their childhood in pressure-packed athletic events. Given the nature of our college education system, which leaves so many people strapped with lifelong debt and financial hardship, an athletic scholarship can be a life-changing accomplishment for both an athlete and her family. This leads many high school athletes and their families to become obsessed with athletic improvement and exposure to college scouts, sometimes leading to both physical and mental burnout and the evaporation of any joy in playing sports. College athletes, especially those who take academics seriously, are asked to maintain absurd schedules The pressure to perform, both athletically and academically, paired with the healthy desire to enjoy a social life, can overwhelm an athlete who's also learning to live away from home for the first time. Underperforming athletes are at especially high risk for mental health issues, as the blessings mentioned above can become points of misery. Committed athletes often build their identities around athletic success and don't cultivate interests outside of sports. When they stop having success, they lose what they've been relying on for self-confidence and meaning in life. All of us seek connection and we want to be useful to our tribe members. Struggling, underperforming athletes live with constant guilt for not contributing enough. I suspect that this is why failing athletes often suffer mental health problems. When an underperforming athlete becomes anxious and depressed, it leads to further diminished performance, which leads to more anxiety and so on. Escaping this negative spiral is bound to be difficult. Four, quote, athletes don't get help for depression or mental health issues because they can't even admit that it's an issue. That's fundamentally at odds with what it means to be a competitor. Olympic figure skater Sasha Cohen. What further complicates the situation for athletes is the fact that mental toughness is not only an advantage in competition, but perhaps the most helpful quality an athlete can have. The heroes of each generation are athletes who demonstrate what Ernest Hemingway defined as the most important human virtue grace under pressure. Professional athletes who melt under pressure in their biggest moments can be ridiculed by fans, sports journalists, and commentators. Athletes who succeed under pressure are always praised and admired, so it makes complete sense that young athletes see their mental issues as failings that should be hidden from others. My best friend in college knew that I was having a tough sophomore season but I had no idea how bad things were because I kept my problems to myself. WNBA guard Katie Lou Samuelson, who wrote in an ESPN article about her struggles with anxiety and depression, did the same thing. Quote, I was really effective at hiding it. My friends and my family, they had no idea. I kept everything to myself. That's one of my issues too. I didn't want anyone to feel I was burdening them or making excuses. End quote. In an HBO documentary titled The Weight of Gold, many Olympic athletes describe their issues with mental health. Olympic superstar Michael Phelps is featured in the production, and he thinks athletes resist seeking help because of the, quote, conviction that we can make ourselves unbeatable if we just work at it, our belief that there's no way that we should need help, our fear that we'll become weak if we show any vulnerability, end quote. A turning point for sports and mental health issues occurred when star power forward Kevin Love posted his 2018 article, Everyone is Going Through Something, where he wrote in detail about leaving an NBA game due to a panic attack. Love writes, quote, Growing up, you figure out really quickly how a boy is supposed to act. You learn what it takes to, quote unquote, be a man. It's like a playbook. Be strong. Don't talk about your feelings. Get through it on your own. So for 29 years of my life, I followed that playbook. And look, I'm probably not telling you anything new here. These values about men and toughness are so ordinary that they're everywhere and invisible at the same time, surrounding us like air or water. They're a lot like depression or anxiety in that way." End quote. Since love, many more athletes have opened up about their mental health issues. DeMar DeRozan, all-star guard for the San Antonio Spurs, described his struggles with depression since his childhood. Philadelphia Eagles right guard Brandon Brooks missed an NFL game due to anxiety-induced vomiting and said he'd been struggling with overwhelming anxiety throughout his career. More recently, America's and the world's premier female gymnast, Simone Biles, dropped out of an event at the Tokyo Olympics because, as she explained, she was experiencing extreme anxiety, physically shaking before the event and worried that she'd get injured if she tried to perform. Five. It's necessary to note that anxiety is an inevitable part of the athletic experience and that some degree of it is actually healthy. Any athlete who feels no quote unquote jitters before a game probably isn't in the right mental state for peak performance. But an athlete experiencing so much anxiety that it inhibits performance and causes dread outside of sport is an athlete with a very serious problem. For those dealing with an unhealthy level of anxiety and or depression, my first recommendation is to seek professional help. If you have access to a therapist or a sports psychologist and you need help, deciding to make an appointment can be the best decision you've ever made. Seeking necessary help isn't a failure, but might well be the act of courage that both saves your athletic career and favorably alters the course of your life. I'd also recommend, assuming you have the resources, that you choose your therapist carefully. Since my first therapist changed my life, I've seen other professionals, and I've realized that, as in any other profession, there's a spectrum of talent and competency. Some of the therapists have been wise, compassionate, and effective. Others have seemed more troubled than I was and only made things worse. I've met with some clearly troubled individuals in my social life who are also therapists. One can jump through the hoops of getting the relevant degrees in psychology without gaining the wisdom or skill to be effective. If you don't feel a positive chemistry with your first choice, look elsewhere. This doesn't mean therapy should be fun or always make you feel good. Therapy can be tough, and whoever you work with will inevitably be another flawed, imperfect human being. But you have to trust and respect the person you're opening up to. I was fortunate to collide with a very skilled therapist, and I'm grateful to her for helping me grow strong and to face my anxiety head on. She didn't try to convince me that somehow everything would eventually be fine just as it was, or allow me to use my anxiety as an excuse for all of my problems. She helped me realize that I shouldn't feel ashamed of my anxiety and that I could deal with it, even if it never went away. Through meditation, I practiced the new relationship to the experience of anxiety. More on this in the next chapter. Instead of trying to push the feeling away, I let it engulf me, and in doing so, discovered that anxiety lost its power. I was dealing with a phobia about shooting in front of my coaches and teammates. In the summer after my awful season, my therapist helped me expose myself to situations that brought on the anxiety and practice dealing with them. She helped me understand my habit of catastrophizing, irrationally viewing unpleasant incidents, like badly missing a free throw, as events that would ruin my life. We worked on my habits, sleep, diet, mindfulness, my relationship to alcohol and partying, And my overuse of my phone and social media we also talked about my issues and understanding where my fears were located helped me reframe them i read transformative books which armed me with new forms of wisdom and resilience through all of this and through the good luck of having a supportive family and friends and a new and excellent head coach as a senior i slowly recovered and my mind has become much stronger than it ever was before the collapse six The traditional way of viewing anxiety as something soft, an embarrassment that should be hidden from others, is clearly unhealthy, and finally, the stigma has begun to lose its power. The courage of professional athletes to open up about their issues has made space for young athletes to reflect on their own mental health. But once the stigma breaks, we need to be careful, both individually and collectively, not to end up at the opposite extreme which would include openly broadcasting anxiety to others and using it as an excuse. In my sessions with Libby from Yo Mind, she discovered my tendency to label myself as someone with anxiety. She often heard me say, I'm an anxious person, or I have anxiety issues. What she made clear to me was that when I said these things, my brain was listening. Libby defined this as a process of reification. Repeating I have anxiety issues established my identity as an anxious person. Which was not only counterproductive but also untrue she helped me realize that like almost everyone sometimes i experienced anxiety and sometimes i didn't perhaps i felt negative emotions more often than some others but that didn't define me as an anxious person through and through when i stopped telling myself and others that i had anxiety i experienced a significant positive change it can be effective to treat serious subjects with humor as when South Park commented on the new, fashionable habit of using anxiety as a counterproductive excuse to retreat from life. Cartman is diagnosed with anxiety by his therapist, and to remedy his problem, he purchases a cardboard box, ironically called a Buddha box, that rests over his head, allowing him to scroll his phone while shutting out the rest of the world. When his school principal asks him what he's doing, he replies, quote, I'm letting go of stress and being calm like the Buddha, end quote. Later, he holds up the line at the water park and sits on Kyle's towel, with a Buddha box over his head while scrolling his phone. Kyle, fed up with Cartman, angrily flips the box off his head and yells, Get off my towel! God damn it, Cartman answers. I seriously can't get a minute of peace. Why is it that people who don't have a Buddha box are always flipping Buddha boxes off the heads of people with anxiety? Then Kyle gets to the point, quote, I've got news for you, Cartman. Everyone has anxiety, everyone gets nervous, everyone gets afraid of being around people, everyone has feelings they'd rather stay home alone. And you know what they do? They get over it and they stop being a piece of shit." End quote. Regarding anxiety as a disease that's completely out of the control of the person suffering it can give short-term relief to the sufferer. For example, social anxiety can be used as an excuse to stay home and not go to the party. But this identity of victimhood can ultimately prevent people from making the necessary changes that would help them recover or at least improve their long-term situations. Anxious athletes shouldn't feel ashamed of their anxieties but should want to recover and overcome them or learn to both play and live with them. Had I been taught to avoid the things that made me afraid, I'd have been stuck where I was forever, anxious and depressed. Had I been encouraged to broadcast my anxiety to others, anxiety would have remained an integral part of my identity. So while i'm happy to see the traditional stigmas surrounding mental health and sports losing their strength there should always be something admirable about quiet courage and pushing ahead despite anxiety and fear seven quote indeed when you go through mood swings you now have to justify why you are not on some medication there may be a few good reasons to be on medication in severely pathological cases but my mood my sadness my bouts of anxiety are a second source of intelligence, perhaps even the first source. Nassim Taleb in Anti-Fragile. I'm not a pharmacologist and I have no experience in clinical research. My attitude towards medication is the result of my own experience paired with my reading and research. What I write below doesn't apply to those suffering from the truly awful and unmanageable mental health issues that I listed to begin the chapter. But for athletes who are dealing with debilitating performance anxiety and or struggling with depression yet are still functioning relatively well as people i recommend trying other solutions before resorting to anti-anxiety medication or antidepressants it's my understanding that medication for anxiety is not as effective as many people tend to think especially over long periods of time in surviving anxiety scott stossel writes that quote while lots of people will testify that the drugs have helped them lots of other people will testify and often do in court filings and before Congress, that medication has ruined their lives, End quote. He points out that psychiatrists' favorite drugs are often no more effective than sugar pills regarding long-term improvement, and that many users experience devastating side effects and withdrawal symptoms. I agree with Stossel that my issues with anxiety are a combination of many factors, psychological, philosophical, behavioral, spiritual, and chemical, and I worry that artificially numbing my emotional pain might prevent me from making the helpful alterations to my philosophies, relationships, and behaviors. That's why I recommend that athletes with experiences similar to mine be wary of anti-anxiety medications or antidepressants and instead focus on other behavioral changes, committing to a mental training and meditation regimen, seriously connecting with deep and sincerely held values or faith, staying connected with people who care about you, Becoming more disciplined with sleep and diet, deleting social media accounts, reducing alcohol and or pot consumption, getting off unprescribed Adderall, getting out of toxic relationships, becoming less obsessed with academic perfection, creating more time for leisure and daily life, making an effort to be kinder and more compassionate to others, spending more time outside in the sun, etc. And one way or another, athletes dealing with performance anxiety need to confront their sports-specific fears. Eight. Quote, the pro-psychedelic position is an anti-drug position. Terrence McKenna. I need to add that early evidence coming back from therapy with psychedelic drugs is very encouraging, specifically with psilocybin, the psychoactive compound in magic mushrooms. Solid evidence concludes that just one or two sessions with psilocybin taken with a trained guide yield far better results than any other medication currently available. What's especially noteworthy is that those who report having a quote-unquote spiritual psilocybin experience are very likely to report significant and long-term relief from depression and anxiety symptoms, PTSD, alcoholism, nicotine addiction, and eating disorders. Psychedelic drugs are commonly and mistakenly lumped together with truly destructive drugs such as heroin and cocaine. While psychedelics can be disrespected and misused, They're relatively non-toxic and are not addictive. In November 2020, HBO's Real Sports documented three athletes suffering from chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE. After two-time Stanley Cup champion Daniel Carcio retired from the NHL, he suffered from ongoing light sensitivity, slurred speech, headaches, head pressure, concentration issues, short and long-term memory loss, and debilitating depression and anxiety. He'd begun planning his suicide before making a final attempt at improvement by flying to Peru to participate in a shamanistic ceremony during which he took ayahuasca, a potent psychedelic that's illegal in much of the world. He reported a long, difficult trip wherein he was quote-unquote visited by his deceased grandparents. After the trip, his CTE symptoms disappeared. Many months later, his wife reported he'd become the loving husband and father she'd married. To some, this may sound fantastical, but these immediate transformations are actually commonplace. Kerry Rhodes, an elite safety in the NFL for eight years, reported having been cured of CTE-related symptoms after his ayahuasca ceremony. Retired UFC fighter Ian McCall, addicted to painkillers and drinking 20 beers a day, said he'd chosen a particular beam in his house to hang himself from. Six months after a major dose of psilocybin, he still hadn't had any alcohol or painkillers and felt like a brand new person. My own limited experience confirms what these examples suggest, and I sometimes wonder whether an adequate dose of psilocybin mushrooms, administered by a competent guide in a therapeutic setting, would have helped me get back on track during my sophomore season. I'm certain it would have done far more good than the alcohol I drank every weekend. Young athletes need to understand that there's a big difference between dropping acid at a music festival and taking a deliberate psychedelic journey in a safe setting with drugs that have been tested for purity. These drugs are powerful and need to be respected as such. I write this a few weeks after my home state of Oregon passed groundbreaking legislation, making psilocybin therapy with a trained and accredited guide legal. It's probable that in the not too distant future, psychedelic therapies will help many suffering people with athletes among them. Chapter 23 the medicine of practice. One, in Altered Traits, Dan Goleman and Richard Davidson conclude that consistent practice in mindfulness-based meditation leads to a decrease in depression and anxiety as effectively as the best medication, but without any side effects. Besides recent scientific claims, thousands of years of testimony that spans many cultures and religions suggests that the practice can transform the mind in positive and durable ways. It's my experience that practicing clear concentration and non-judgmental awareness off the court helped me find the flow states on the court that took my game to new levels. While I wouldn't wish the misery I suffered early on in my college basketball career on anyone, in some ways I'm thankful for it. My depression and anxiety drew me to meditation and an interest in understanding my own mind. Because the mental aspects of sport are far more difficult to define and analyze than the physical aspects, Too many athletes try to convince themselves that they can cultivate a desired state of mind simply by wanting it or telling themselves they want it. Or they believe that they can attain a state of mind by thinking and talking about it. But for those of us struggling with self-doubt, thinking our way into a positive mental state isn't sustainable. Examine this common athletic advice. Control what you can control and don't worry about the rest. This seems sensible, but how can it be done? How do you stop worrying about the things you can't control? You can tell yourself every day or two, or every hour or two, that you should do it. But if you're struggling with anxiety, any confidence acquired that way will likely evaporate within minutes. Coaches don't tell their players to jump higher or to be stronger. Instead, they help them train so that they can gradually improve their athleticism. As with any physical attribute we can name, endurance, strength, coordination, each of us possesses a spectrum of raw talent or potential. A few are born with exceptional leaping ability, while others can barely get off the ground. Likewise, some of us have an innate capacity to focus clearly on a task at hand, while others have minds easily distracted by thoughts and fears, making it difficult to concentrate. Those of us who battle anxiety and self-doubt have work to do in order to achieve mental toughness, just as someone who's overweight has work to do to make the soccer team. We can't tell ourselves to be fit and then sit back and wait for it to happen. Athletic competition is its own kind of mental training for life at large. Athletes learn how to deal with adversity, stress, and pressure. They learn how to show up and give energy and effort even when they don't feel like it. They learn the importance of individual sacrifice for the sake of collective success. They learn how to respond to criticism. Many former athletes thrive in the job market because the stress and pressure they face in an office pale in comparison to what they faced as athletes. But not all athletes are born with minds that can deal successfully with pressure. So if sports are mental training for life at large, how does an athlete mentally train for sports? The good news is that as with physical skills and traits, mental capabilities can be improved through discipline practice. In his Waking Up app, Sam Harris draws a useful comparison between physical and mental training. He points out that not very long ago, people who dedicated themselves to physical training and exercise were thought to be strange and eccentric. It was culturally weird behavior, with the unfortunate result that nearly everyone missed out on the benefits it offered. Harris argues that there is still a sizable cultural blind spot regarding mental training. Quote, there are people who lose 100 pounds and become competitive triathletes. However rare those extreme transformations are, we know that they're possible, and the rest of us pursue our own efforts at physical self-improvement on that same landscape of possibility. End quote. He goes on to make the important point that most of us remain unaware that it's possible to transform our minds in a similar way. Obviously, meditating and training the mind alone won't make anyone a great athlete. The skills specific to our sports are an indispensable component, but for some of us, mental limitations set a glass ceiling drastically inhibiting our physical skills and competition. To reap the benefits of the work we put in on our skills, strength, and endurance, we have to work on mental skills so that we can surpass the limitations set by our minds. Athletes who don't struggle with anxiety can benefit from this advice as well. At the upper levels of sport, where every competitor is extremely talented, it's usually a mental or spiritual edge that separates the truly special players from everyone else. In The Last Dance, a documentary about Michael Jordan's final season with the Bulls, author Mark Vansel said the following, quote, Most people live in fear because we project the past into the future. Michael's a mystic. He was never anywhere else. His gift was not that he could jump high, run fast, and shoot a basketball. His gift was that he was completely present, and that was the separator. End quote. Two, my mental training eventually allowed me to reach the first rung on the ladder out of the darkness. Not running from my problems produced enough mental space for me to start making better decisions, which gradually compounded. I soon became mindful enough to realize that neither trying to sleep all day nor drinking all weekend made any sense. I started eating better food and getting more sleep, and these decisions allowed me to gain some mental clarity. Ever since I was a child, I've had the tendency to overthink and overanalyze, and my mind can spin in unending loops. I tried to think my way out of problems by imagining the worst possible case scenario and then wondering what things would look like when that occurred. The practice of meditation allowed me to stop warring against my own mind. Sitting in silence and following the breath yields wisdom that new information, incessant thinking, and rumination cannot. Slowly, my practice shifted from just a way to feel better and to get back to quote unquote normal to a way to optimize performance and then to a way to connect with the beauty of sports and life. Meditation creates a low stress, low pressure environment where we can practice helpful mental skills over and over again. While sitting and attempting to meditate, countless distractions arise. We're challenged by feelings of being tired, bored, restless, and impatient. Each time we recognize these states of mind and bring our concentration back to the object of awareness, like the breath, our minds grow slightly stronger. Three, athletes respond in many different ways to criticism and conflict. When getting criticized or yelled at by our coach, some of my teammates reflexively blamed the coach for singling them out and being unfair these teammates also had a false if somewhat useful perception of their own talents and abilities when they played poorly they often blamed the referees the system or their teammates for not sharing the ball while these teammates had their own issues like occasional selfishness and arrogance they seldom struggled with anxiety or issues of confidence but players like me have the opposite impulse i was always keenly aware of my limitations as a player Being yelled at by my coach made me feel horrible, and I wanted desperately to do better and make him happy. I tried to maintain peace and avoid conflict with teammates and friends. This definitely contributed to my anxiety on the court, and I know other players with the same temperament who had similar struggles. I imagine this dynamic applies to famous athletes who deal with criticisms from the media, and that players with my kind of temperament take it especially hard. I know my mental training made me more comfortable with conflict, which made me a better player and a more complete person. As my practice developed, criticism from my coach no longer made me shut down as a player. I could absorb what I thought was true and deflect what I thought was unfair. Meditation also helped me stand up to conflict and not back down from challenges from teammates in practice and opponents in games. I was able to notice the tension that conflict produces and let it linger rather than trying to alleviate it as quickly as I could. I think players like me Overthinkers prone to self-doubt can benefit from being more assertive both on and off the court. Meditation practice helps us recognize our tendency to keep the peace and to say what other people want to hear, and therefore to learn how to stand up for ourselves. Four. Quote, whoever makes good progress in the beginning has all the more difficulties later on. Kudo Zen master, Awa Kenzo. Even for those who are convinced that meditation might be something worth doing, Cultivating the discipline to sit in silence once per day and endure difficult emotions is challenging. The majority of people who start the practice don't stick with it long enough to see it work. What seem to be more pressing obligations or desires make meditation easy to skip. No one else notices when we miss the 20-minute session we promised ourselves. Even now, after years of practice, when I'm fully convinced of the importance of my meditation, I sometimes find myself willing to procrastinate when my list of things to do seems more urgent than sitting somewhere silent and alone. But when I'm thinking clearly, I understand that practicing meditation is one of the best ways I can spend the required time. In both my junior and senior seasons, I finally realized that, for me, meditation was more important than getting 50 or 100 extra shots up. Whenever possible, I did both, but no matter how much I practiced my shot, my mind had to be in order for the shot to work. An initial inability to focus on the breath and quiet the mind discourages people. Those new to the practice often expect too much too soon, the same way a dieter hopes to lose 40 pounds in a month or two. Complicating the issue is the fact that these days, meditation is commonly sold by authors and app developers as a cure-all for every variety of negative experiences. The difficulties faced in meditation are understated, if not ignored by these people, and the benefits are exaggerated, especially for beginners. As a result, new meditation students tend to begin with the expectation of calm relaxation and a pleasant experience, and instead experience boredom, restlessness, and discomfort. Predictably common reactions are, I'm not doing this right, or meditation isn't any good for me. Here is Yonggi Mingyo Rinpoche describing this problem. Quote, The first thing that happens when we begin to meditate, I told him, is we learn just how crazy our minds are, Many of us take that as a sign that we are not cut out for meditation. Actually, it is just the opposite. It's the first sign you are becoming familiar with your own mind. It's a great insight. You will be fine." End quote. If you decided that tomorrow you're going to start learning to play the violin, would you expect your first day or even your first six months of practice to turn you into a virtuoso? Even a much simpler skill, riding a bike, is frustrating at the start. But when you finally catch on, you're able to hop on the bike and, with little physical or mental effort, ride happily away. Meditation is no different. You have to push through the difficult beginning stages. An additional confusion that disrupts consistent practice for beginners is that meditation is too often regarded as a metaphysical pill taken to calm the mind. Because the aim of meditation practice is ultimately to relax the mind and eliminate mental anguish, many aspiring meditators conclude that they should practice only when they're anxious or depressed, which is something like practicing high jump only after spraining an ankle. I spent my first six months expecting meditation to calm me and I became frustrated every time my mind wandered away from my object of focus. Why the hell can't I concentrate on my breath for more than three or four seconds at a time? I thought peaceful meditations were good and restless or sleepy meditations were bad. I was wrong. In the Zen tradition, students are taught to appreciate the difficulties they face when they begin. In his book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, Shunryu Suzuki writes, quote, those who can sit perfectly physically usually take more time to obtain the true way of Zen, the actual feeling of Zen, the marrow of Zen, but those who find great difficulties in practicing Zen will find more meaning in it, end quote. The necessary shift occurred for me when I was told that what matters, especially in the beginning, is bringing attention back to the object of focus over and over again. As various meditation teachers put it, bringing a wandering mind back to the object of attention is like a weightlifting repetition for the brain. Each rep makes the mind slightly stronger, slightly more capable of dealing with distraction. So when you begin to meditate, go easy on your expectations. Do your best to keep your attention focused, but in the beginning, Don't expect to be anywhere near perfect. Realize that moments when you catch your wandering mind and bring your attention back are victories, not failures. Okay, thank you for listening to that section of my audiobook. As always, you can support me by purchasing the book for yourself or for someone else or for sharing the link to the book with someone who you think might be interested or could benefit from reading it. You can find a link in the show notes or visit billyhanson.net forward slash book. I always appreciate reviews on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And you can stay in touch with my work by subscribing to my newsletter, billyhansen.net forward slash newsletter. And please feel free to reach out to say hi or to connect or to give any feedback or criticisms or suggestions. I'm always happy to hear from you. Thank you and I'll see you here for the next episode. It's the sauce.